Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and today I'm speaking with Christina Zuika. How are you, Christina? I am well enough. I'm here in Melbourne, so I'll let you draw your own conclusion. <laughs> okay, and what is on the agenda today then? Um, on a personal and a professional level, I have, for all the obvious reasons, been fairly obsessed with the topic of parental burnout. Okay. And pandemic parental burnout, to be more precise. Obviously very timely, so let's get into it. Okay, so Christina, you have written this piece for Women's Agenda saying that, yes, parental burnout is an actual thing and I think many of us would have uh, felt it in some shape or form even before the pandemic, but it's particularly coming out during this period. So can we start with the the early things that you learned about parental burnout? What actually is it? And I know that it is different to your standard workplace burnout. Yeah, so it's a similar but distinct phenomenon. So burned out parents, as it's been explained to me um, by Professor Isabel Roscombe, who is a leading psychologist who's really done most of the peer-reviewed research on this. Um, Burned out parents are exhausted by the unceasing demands of parenting. Although they might get rest periods, they never really recharge. So they're always in a survival mode, which of course leads to more exhaustion and more stress. And it's associated with disordered sleep and a number of other symptoms. And when I read that and I started to read, because the idea, the concept of parental burnout has really kind of come to the fore in the last couple of years. I've read different articles about it in the New York Times and Psychology Today. Um, And I was quite interested in it um, because we are living at a time of particularly intensive parenting. And then when the pandemic hit, I really thought um, this is setting up parents for a particularly Mm. acute um, situation or period of what I would call pandemic parental burnout. So I reached out to Professor Roscombe in Belgium to get a sense of if she had done any research or if she had found that the pandemic was exacerbating this really kind of troubling trend amongst parents. Yes. And so, I mean, my first question is going to be, is it uh, being exacerbated during this period? I feel like it might be a bit of an obvious answer, but let's let's hear it. Well, um, as I said, I wrote in that piece, um, in news that will come as no (laughs) surprise to parents, including my many fellow parents here in uh, Melbourne, where we have been in stage four lockdown um, with our children, homeschooling them for, and I'm losing track of time. So I think you'll have to correct me. It's been about eight weeks now, but all the days are leading into one. Mm. Um, Certainly the pandemic has exacerbated that situation and not just here in Melbourne where we're in stage four, but, you know, obviously for parents around the world who are struggling um, with the intensive parenting demands of parenting during a pandemic. That was, yeah, going to be my next question. Maybe because if we look internationally, man, I know in Victoria there was like a brief reprieve for, for parents in a way in that, that schools open for a, a couple of weeks there. Internationally, if you look at, there's, there's you know, in the US, I mean, schools have just been closed for months and months now. Have you Did you find parental burnout kind of differed from country to country? When you were doing that initial research, is it a term that is being used widely? 
It is a term that is used widely. Um, a psychologist, uh, sorry, a psychiatrist that I spoke to here in Victoria, uh, Professor Louise Newman, doesn't like to use the term burnout, uh, but she, because for her that implies um, to be burned out that you have too much to do and you feel tired. Mm. But she recognized it as a phenomenon and all of those symptoms, and she certainly said that that's something that she's seen in her practice. Um, when I spoke to Anne Holland, who's the director of the Australian Institute for Family Studies, she certainly recognized um, the phenomenon and the symptoms uh, amongst parents here in Australia. And like I said, when I spoke to Dr. Isabel Roscom in Belgium, who's actually studied whether or not the pandemic has exacerbated this trend in parents in, in her home country, that had definitely been the case. So, you know, parents to varying degrees in different countries are definitely um, coming to grips with the reality of struggling, of struggling to parent in a pandemic. And there's a lot of commonality in what that looks like, schools mm-hmm. and child care facilities in particular, in a lot of places are currently closed or have been closed for a long period of time. And one of the, the key things about parental burnout is that it's... Um, an imbalance of the stresses that Mm. you experience as a parent and the resources that you have to deal or to cope with it. And what the pandemic has done is take away or strip away a lot of those resources. So um, that imbalance, for all the obvious reasons, is, is particularly acute. Yeah, and these are resources that we, I mean, you really could never have imagined being taken away to this extent. I mean, this time last year, I mean, I don't think any of us could even comprehend schools closing for, for months at a time and and moving to this um, era of, of remote learning and doing what we've been asked to do. Um, I don't think we could have comprehended also, you know, even just, I mean, we've got to remember also that childcare centres uh, are largely closed throughout Victoria. And so you've also got parents with, with younger kids may, that might not be dealing with the remote learning, but they are dealing with younger kids at home all the time. And they may also need to be doing some paid work around that as well. And it just, it just isn't possible for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think when you add to that, and this is one of the interesting things that Professor Newman um, pointed out to me, you know, there's those practical issues and that imbalance between um, the stresses that you're experiencing and the resources that you have to deal with it. But there's also uh, what she called more complex emotions that we're really dealing with. So uncertainty is is a key and very complex emotion that a lot of us are dealing with. And trying to unpack that for ourselves and for our children um, is very scary. And Mm. we're dealing with a lot of worries and fears. Some of them um, she called apocalyptic fears. And, Mm. And I think I can, I and a lot of other parents can relate to that. And good parents and try to, and, you know, most parents try to give their children a sense of hope and joy about the future. And it can be very difficult to do that when you're feeling really uncertain or maybe a little bit hopeless yourself. Mm. So there's that added, I think, perhaps kind of in, in some ways for our generation, unprecedented. I know that word's been used and overused to describe mm. recent events, but there's that added layer. So it's, 
um, you know, as Professor Newman pointed out to me, it's a, it's a bit more complex than um, that imbalance between resources and having that those resources stripped away. There's also that kind of larger um, psychological impact of uncertainty mm-hmm. on you and your child and trying to guide your, your child through the the period of uncertainty and give them a sense of optimism and hope for the future. On that uncertainty, we've also got in Australia, I mean, just earlier this year, we obviously had the bushfires and there was the trauma that came from that, the collective trauma from that, um, even if you weren't directly impacted and the feeling that there's so much to explain to kids at that point, well before we um, had, you know, as we were starting to hear about the virus, but well before we realised what a huge impact it would have on our lives here. I think there's a lot more here as well when we think about um, climate change, um, even the upcoming US election, which will have huge consequences for us long term. And when it comes Mm. back to all this uncertainty and raising kids, I just think even take away COVID, it's really, it's, it's, it's really hard on on parents right now. And that quote from, um, which we published and highlighted and in that story from Professor Louise Newman you know, attempting to parent and give children a sense of hope and joy about the future, which is what many parents try to do, is very difficult for people who are facing, who are themselves feeling overwhelmed by by what they're facing. Is there anything that you came across that we can do to help with these feelings? I mean, I know we'll get to some of the other things that we can do to help with parental burnout in general, but these feelings of uncertainty, is there, what, what can we do as parents? Well, one of the insights that I had when I was um, researching writing this piece, which helped me personally uh, enormously, and the feedback that I've had from um, those, the the women who are featured in the story and um, the many who've read it since then, is that concept of lowering the bar and Mm -hmm. then lower it again. (laughs) Like, if you think it doesn't go any lower, check again. It Mm -hmm. might just might be some room to lower it once again. Um, and the, the, the point is that, you know, even at the best of times, um, and if we can just imagine what it was like in before times, mm-hmm. there is a tendency as parents to reach out to your network to normalize your experiences and to get a sense of um, what does it mean to be a good parent? What does it mean to be a good mother? And but one of the challenges of the current situation is that none of us have ever really experienced anything like this before in our generation, in our living memory. So there's no roadmap for what mm-hmm. it means to be a good parent or a good mother in in the midst of a pandemic. And at the same time, um, and this is something I really relate to as well, we're a generation of parents, and I think I made mention of this before, we have this intensive parenting tendency, and that's come at precisely a time when women have mm. gone into the workforce in larger and larger numbers. So in some ways, we've kind of had a tendency to create a rod for our own back because we have that tendency to set the bar very, very high. So now we're in a situation where we're individually and collectively trying to define for ourselves and for our communities and what it means to be a good parent in a pandemic. And there are lots of really vexed questions that come up. Should I send my kids to childcare? Should I let them see their grandparents? Should I join a learning pod? You know, that's 
quite political in the U.S. Mm. at the moment. Mm. Um, should I be doing more to support homeschooling? Um, do I do enough craft with my children? Um, mm. And that can also lead to particularly mother shaving, which I've written about before for Women's Agenda. And I think we're really seeing a particularly virulent strain of that. You kind of compare yourself to other people on social media and go, oh, well, so-and-so is building a solar system with little Alfie this weekend. And why didn't I do that? Um, so I think one of, the, um, one of the women that I spoke to, Ashley Rogers, said that she felt like the goalposts were always changing and that that was really draining. And so one of the things that we can do to help ourselves, and this is what every mental health expert that I spoke to for this piece really emphasized, was to lower that bar and to lower it again. Mm. And that point, and I know that Georgie has talked a lot about this um, in her book, and um, it's just it's a good mental health strategy as well, is to look for that black and white but also that self-talk. And um, Professor Newman talked about that. He's accepting of your vulnerabilities and frailties. Uh, and don't put pressure on yourself to maintain the usual thing in highly unusual circumstances. That's okay. And basically, I've just said a lot, but in short, if you have to get a game console, mm -hmm. if you plop the kids down in front of the TV and you step away from the bloody craft, mm. that's okay. If your family's net well-being benefits from that, if your well-being and mental health benefits from that, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think I mentioned to you, Christina, about watching, and we published something on this, it was months ago, but where um, Jacinda Ardern, during New Zealand's lockdown, she was doing these regular sessions with different experts on how to get through this period, and she did have a parenting expert on there. And they they talked a lot about screen time, and his advice was just that, you know, this is a, this is a period of time, you know, and at that point it was a few weeks and I know it's a bit harder now because we're now looking at months and it is stretching out a lot further. But his point was that if your kids need to go onto their screens, then, then let them because it's obviously really difficult for them as well. And you just need to do what you need to do to, to get through this period. You can then adapt and make the changes later on if you think they are having too much screen time and you need to try and get back to some kind of um, normal state of being, but for now, it, it is what it is. We're trying to get through a pandemic. It, it's it's okay. Yeah. Don't don't be such. Don't set the bar so high, um, and don't be so hard on yourself. It's it's okay. Mm. We're all doing the best we can. Yes, and you mentioned that mother shaming piece, and I just had this thought that I think it was the first story you ever wrote for Women's Agenda. Is that? Yeah, I think. The first story I ever wrote was on women's um, workforce participation okay, because sorry. that's how I roll <laughs> and I love talking about. Okay, and I'm sure there would have been a lot of numbers and very good stats in there. But There, I... were, there were lots of numbers and stats. I think the second piece I wrote was about um, mom shaming and there was that great, I think it was the two fish finger salute. The fish finger salute, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Where I think, yeah, a mother talks about being shamed for serving her kids uh, fish fingers. Um, and yes, so came yes. up with a great way to uh, respond. <laughs> okay, so I did finally want to ask, the, the final part of your piece looks at the fact that there could be long-term consequences of parental burnout. Obviously, that's very concerning. What What did you find in terms of that? Well, um, 
you know, again, I spoke to a number of mental health experts, Ben Anne Holland at the Australian Institute of Family Studies, and Anne was particularly concerned. And she said, look, you know, we're, we might not see, we're, we're definitely seeing some of this come, come to the fore in the moment. And I think that that's reflected in some of the statistics that I mentioned a little bit earlier in the piece about the percentages of parents who could be, I um, can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a significant number of um, parents who are experiencing quote unquote high levels of mental distress Mm -hmm. and that they have primary school age children. And Mm -hmm. she said that there's really going to be a long tail to this crisis and that we have to, as a country, um, prepare for that and ensure that our mental health system and our mental health resources are properly set up for Mm -hmm. that. Um, that they can that they can deal with the, the longer term consequences and the types of things that may become an issue further down the track, um, and you know that this could really affect some parents' ability, their confidence. You know, Professor Newman was saying that to me. Like some parents might um, have a real hit to their confidence, and that will have some significant long term effects. And there might be some, even some PTSD issues later. Mm. So one of the things that Anne was saying to me was that um, we need to do more to encourage parents um, to demonstrate what we call help-seeking behavior. So we've seen a lot of campaigns at the moment reminding people that various services, particularly mental health services, are out there and available for people who are struggling. But she wasn't so sure that parents were necessarily seeing themselves in that messaging Mm. and that those services were doing the best possible job to communicate that message to parents. Because one of the things that she said to me is that um, parents might go, oh, you know, Beyond Blue or Lifeline, that's for people who have really, quote unquote, serious problems. You know, what I'm experiencing isn't that serious, that's but for other people, I don't want to deflect or take away from those services. So maybe an investment, and it might not even require more money, but just um, it's using the resources or difference in communication to really articulate to parents that those that they see themselves in those services and that they realize that those services are them, they're for them. Um, and then... You know, we can also talk about existing, particularly parent services, about how to ensure that they're properly resourced to deal with some of the the longer term, the shorter term and the longer term consequences of this mm. and mm. to support families. Mm. And I think the last thing was that um, primary health and GPs maybe need to be a little bit teed up um, that there will be some longer term consequences of this and that they can spot that in there um, amongst their patients and the parents that they work with. If they're seeing that they're struggling with depression or anxiety, uh, that they're aware of the the concept of parental burnout, if you want to call it that um, or call it something else, but the the impact of the guilt Mm -hmm. about having been quote-unquote suboptimal parents in this context and the impact of people judging themselves so harshly can really impact people's 
daily functioning um, in the short and the longer term. So those health professionals would maybe be on the front line and the first that um, parents might reach out to or mention that they're struggling with, with some of these issues. So they might be the first to kind of say, well, yeah, you know, you're not alone. And this, this is a thing, <laughs> you know, getting back to the title of the article, parental burnout is a thing and you're not alone. It's, it's a really natural response to an extraordinary set of circumstances. Let's just unpack why you're feeling this way and um, signpost you and direct you to some, some resources that will help you feel better. So as a parent yourself and in lockdown at the moment, um, what are some of the things that you've found have helped you just uh, this is a note that I just wanted to end on but what, what what's been good for you during this period that has that has actually helped because I imagine that you've experienced some burnout I know that you've been working hard you've been writing many pieces for lots of different publications and you've done some brilliant work for us um, really detailed research work so what what how have you gotten through these past I mean you mentioned eight weeks I can't remember either but these yeah. past few months so one of the insights that I had early on in the first lockdown, and I think I wrote a piece for Women's Agenda that was something along the lines of, we might not have a cure for a coronavirus, but perhaps we've found a cure for intensive parenting. Mm. Um, and I think before I did this piece, I had that step away from the craft mm. realization. I remember in the first couple of days of the first lockdown, I have this chat group of, of four very close girlfriends, and we were all busily texting each other proud <laughs> photographs of different schedules that we had made. I think I actually even exchanged a few quite intensive parenting mm. messages with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was very ambitious uh, in those first uh, yeah. few weeks. Remember of that one. Lego um, oh, yeah. coaster my daughter made? <laughs> <laughs> we did. We, we were sharing I'm, Lego challenges. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel really bad about sending that to you now because I feel like. I just want to apologize to you now publicly and, and um, so everyone out there can hear. I'm sorry. I said, and <laughs> I might put some oh, context no. around that is that our kids are quite different ages. And so I had my younger kids doing Lego challenges and <laughs> they create their attention spans were very limited, sort of a couple of minutes. And so um, their creations <laughs> were quite limited as well. Um, yeah. It was quite different to the the extravagance that happened when your daughter spent all afternoon <laughs> building, building quite a remarkable looking roller coaster. It was, yeah, but you know, we, yes, it's yes, also like that was, it's, that's it's, a coping yeah. mechanism as well because we wanted to share things that we're doing that were amusing with our kids at that time, and it was, you know, yeah. it was it was different, and it was. It was well, well, you're you're very forgiving. I feel I still feel bad about that. Um, you know, that's just the case in point of, you know, that what we were talking about earlier about how you reach out to your friends and family and try to get the sense of what does it, what's normal? What does it mean to be a good parent? And if you're not careful, um, I could have inadvertently, although it wasn't my intention, sort of set the bar for you as being a good parent is if your child's producing this ridiculously elaborate <laughs> piece of like a roller coaster. And then after a couple of days of these quite intense exchanges or about a week, 
we all saw the light and we're just like, what are we doing? <laughs> we can't keep this up. And, you know, we're all overachievers. We're all, and, and it's also a coping mechanism. You know, we're under stress, so we were just going to mm. throw organization at it. Mm. Um, and then it was just slowing down and letting go and the bar just dropping lower and lower and lower. So I think I kind of intuitively got there um, with some friends and that was really helpful. I found that my school approach during the school first lockdown was very helpful as well. Um, they really felt like the kids' mental health and the parents' mental health and the teachers' mental health was the utmost concern. So their primary message to us was, we are going to get through this to the other side. And if that means that we have to go back and fill some gaps later, that's what we'll do. But we don't want, you know, our teachers are trying to figure this out. The kids are trying to figure this out. We know that the parents are under a lot of pressure as well. If sometimes you can't get to some homeschooling assignment, that's okay. Do what you can. And it was, it was, and they really tried to create more of a sense of community for the kids and to check in on them from an emotional well-being perspective and less from a, why haven't you handed in this particular assignment or why weren't you at this WebEx meeting this morning? And I found getting that kind of support from the school really helpful. Mm. Um, and I, I know that hasn't been everyone's experience, so I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, and I also have the privilege of, I we have a spare kind of little, um, I guess, annex or something at the end of our garden, which I turned into a little office for myself, I think, a few weeks into the, the second lockdown, because mm. um, it was just doing my head in the WebEx meetings everywhere, driving me crazy, because my husband's working from home as well, and there were these three WebExes space. going, yeah. and I found some space, and um, I did a little, little plug for Kmart. I promised they haven't paid me, but I, I got a chair and I bought a vase and I got some fresh flowers and I just felt like I created. Um, there was this article that I read in, I think it was in the Lily in the Washington Monthly uh, about um, the, the fight between uh, heterosexual partners, men and women over home office space and about how men always got the prime real estate. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and... Yeah, and I just thought I'm gonna I'm gonna stake out a piece of real estate in this house for myself, and the act of doing that it was very you know Virginia Woolf room of one's own all that, um, but that really helped and it's given me a little bit of a refuge and and that is a privilege not everybody um, has the space to do that so I definitely recognize that but that's that's really helped me as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that that, yeah, obviously having that space, I think it's so interesting that you you highlight that article. We also heard about the interruption gap, how there was research finding that uh, women were being interrupted by kids a lot more than men. Um, but so I've, I've, I've vacated to the end of the garden. I've left my children in the house with their father. And the other thing I saw shared around, and I don't know, this isn't obviously everyone's experiences, but I found it amusing. It was comparing some of the desk set up of uh, men who were working from home to women and some of them had multiple wide screens and they basically replicated these extravagant things that you would have in the most over-the-top office possible. 
Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of women sitting there on an iPad or a, <laughs> a <Yeah>. laptop. <laughs> and uh, getting injuries. People are injuring themselves because they're hunched over, uh, are sitting in bed doing work or on the sofa and they don't have a, a proper setup. And mm. so, so, yeah, so take your claim if you can. Yeah, take your claim. Exactly. Some, some prime home working real estate. Yeah. Yeah, if you're like me, I, I've been working from a, a kid's school desk and so that's the thing. You think it's only going to be for a few weeks so you may not have taken that time to really set something up that's going to work for you to like actually get a chair if you need it rather than using yeah. kind of the kitchen bench or something. So I think yeah. more people I mean, are that. was a that real now. change that I noticed in the second lockdown in Melbourne is that um, – because particularly when you, you know, some people broadcast a lot on Facebook or, you know, they, they do a lot of events. And I can see that the ones who were in Melbourne rethought their space the second time around yeah, and just made it work for them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, especially for the excellent piece, uh, which you're doing as part of this ongoing series about women in COVID. And it's absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to see the next piece. Um, But thank you for sharing your experiences as well, Christina. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. If this episode did raise any issues for you or if you or someone you know needs any assistance, I just wanted to share some key helplines for you. The first one being Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. The next one is Lifeline on 13 11 14. And another one is Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. You can also check out all of their websites. Now, a reminder once again that the stories that we do cover on Women's Agenda you can find in some form on our website where you can also go and subscribe to our daily free newsletter that comes out just before lunchtime. The Women's Agenda podcast is produced by Agenda Media and you can also go and check out our new and second podcast called The Leadership Lessons. It's hosted by Kate Mills and it goes into some really deep and interesting territory examining how to lead for the critical decade ahead by speaking with uh, key female leaders. Go and check it out. Thank you for listening.